Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Michelle Seeger is an award-winning NIH-funded sustainable behavior change researcher at the University of Michigan and a lifestyle coach. For nearly three decades, she has pioneered methods to create sustainable, healthy behavior change that are being used to boost patient health, employee well-being, and gym membership retention. And today, she's here to chat about her new book, The Joy Choice how to finally achieve lasting changes in eating and exercise. Michelle, welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you because when I think when it comes to all things nutrition and diet, uh, we all know those very sad statistics around New Year's resolutions. Um, So I'm going to... I'm going to segue to the, the big question, which I think hits at the why behind this book. What are we getting so wrong when it comes to habit formation or achieving lasting changes when it comes to nutrition and fitness? Well, what if, and I'm going to ask a rhetorical question to your question, and then I'm going to answer it. The first, the first question is, what if we've been getting it all wrong? There have been so many approaches and strategies. And um, so as I was taking a walk this morning and I was really trying to understand how can I distill this information in, in its simplest form? And I think in its simplest form, the answer to your question is we have been paying too much attention. Our focus has been on the ideal. How do we do this right? Instead of how do we do this wrong? How do we succeed in ways that's going to let us do our healthy eating, our intentional eating, our exercise in ways that are going to be perfectly imperfect and reflect the other ways we have to live complex areas of our lives? So I'm going to I'm going to give you an example. I see that you're you're brow is furrowed. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm not as clear as I want to be. So let me give you an example. When it comes to parenting, when it comes to our careers, we don't aim to do it perfectly, to get it right all the time. We come to these meaningful life projects with an understanding that because they're lifelong endeavors, there's going to be ebbs and flows and rights and wrongs. And some days are great and some days are terrible, but we just keep going and we don't judge. Not, it's not to say that we can't, you know, as a parent to a teenager that I can't make a misstep and go, gosh, I really made a misstep, but I can't throw in the towel and don't want to throw in the towel and say, I failed and I'm done. But when it comes to eating and exercise, we bring the opposite to these endeavors. So I'm going to stop there and see if you want to react. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is we're failing because we set unachievable goals. And we set on, and this is the most important part. We set unachievable goals because we have been socialized, educated, indoctrinated to set 
unachievable um, goals, and also to think about behavior change in really simplistic ways. That behavior change is the opposite of simplistic. So if we're being told formulas that treat changing our eating or exercise as if we can just create a cue that's going to, uh, or uh, a prompt that's going to cue us when we get to that prompt and ignore how complex that cue and prompt is within our complex lives and many roles and responsibilities, then most of us, some of us will succeed, but most of us won't. So, um, you know, I know that probably people say, well, I don't want it to be hard. And yeah, like neither do I. But again, if the approaches we're using treat the endeavor in ways that don't appreciate how complex they really are, then we're just going to keep failing and stopping again and again and again instead of sustaining, which we really can do if we approach it in ways that best fit who we are as individuals and our con- our life context and the daily hubbub that it, it may have for many of us. So in a sense, it's in some ways, it's about establishing not just any habit, but the right habits that fit within your everyday. And, you know, I think habit is a complicated word in this conversation because you're using it in a way that reflects consistent choice making and consistent behaviors. And, you know, on one level, habit refers to that, but on another level, habit very popularly refers to creating this automaticity in our choices that many of us have daily living contacts that can't support that type of rigid context cue response. And so um, I guess I would restate what you said and suggest that what we want to do is pick a realistic plan and change and understand that um, when we plan it into our lives, we want to plan it into our lives with the understanding and and appreciation that we're going to have to learn how to improvise with it in our daily life context, just like we have to do our friends, our jobs, our spousing, our parenting, et cetera. So I want to pause on auto automaticity. I came across that word in the book and I underlined it and I said, okay, that's, that's, you you made a point with that word and it's an interesting word. It was a new word for me. So let's, can you spend some time on, on how you think about automaticity? I can't say it. Automaticity. It's a hard, it's, it only, I'm only saying it right because I've had to say it a lot. It's auto, like on autopilot, maticity. And it means that we make a choice on autopilot. There's no thinking, there's no willpower. And in theory, you know, not in theory, research shows that we live much of our life on autopilot or you know, automatically through automaticity, like when we drive our cars to our work, you know, we're most likely doing it in a rote state of mind because we've learned it so well. And for things that are mechanical um, or for simple behaviors like flossing, if you're flossing at night, most likely, I'm not going to say most likely, people aim to 
have their flossing put on automaticity. And it is for me. Um, when I am doing my nighttime regimen, it is absolutely tied to brushing my teeth. I don't think about it. I just reach for the floss. That's having my floss be on automaticity. And there's been a lot of popular books and a lot of advocacy that, gee, we live so much of our life on autopilot. And isn't it so much easier if we don't have to make choices in our busy day and we don't have to exert willpower? So let's aim to put our behaviors on automatic, you know, let's aim to achieve automaticity for exercise, for example. The problem, yes, wouldn't it be great in an ideal world, like let's make a movie about this idyllic place where um, things can be on automatic pilot and we don't have to, it, it, things don't get in the way. But the problem, there's an assumption, there's a lot of assumption assumptions underlying this um advocacy for automaticity. And one of the biggest assumptions is that um, people have life contacts that can support the rigid um, uh, uh, circumstances that are needed to cue the, to cue the habit. So, um, and, you know, if you think about you're about to leave to go to your exercise class or to go to the, you know, or I look at the computer to start your Peloton, whatever, virtual class. And you get, a, you know, your dog pukes right over there. Like there goes the automaticity, right? You've got to clean, you know, you're not going to, and that just derails that. And that kind of stuff happens day in and day out. So, so that's one of the assumptions underlying creating the goal, you know, this idyllic gold standard. But once we leave the laboratories where the research is being done on habit formation, on the, you know, aiming for this automaticity, which is mostly done in labs with undergrad, with students and in animals. And so a lot of the tenants, you'd think that something as popular as habit formation for creating sustainable change, which would have a decent amount of research to back up that it, it drives lasting change. But in fact, there's very little research support for this idea, yet it's this very popular thing. And I think it's popular because it's easy to understand. So if I'm listening and maybe I'm reading between the lines, but I'm thinking this is a response to habit stacking and a lot of James Clear's work or, or no, is that the wrong assumption? Well, it is in response to now, habit stacking reflects what I just said about uh, flossing and brushing your teeth. And, you know, those types of habits, easy habits that may happen in a bathroom where there aren't other people and animals that are going to interrupt you, the, uh, the critique, the concern I'm offering in The Joy Choice, and it's, um, it's just the first chapter, right? It's not the, what the whole book is about is that we, ha- we are being told that we should be creating automatic habits for our behaviors. And a lot of these books are written across from work to personal lives, to exercise. And when you, tr- and these behaviors are all very different. And it is anyone who has studied a complex behavior like intentional eating and and trying to create exercise that is sustained over time, not in university students, but in people who have families and who have jobs and who have aging parents, 
um, will tell you that something that works to create an autom automaticity for making an, an espresso in a cafe where it doesn't take thought and you're so efficient will not work for most people when it comes to complicated behavior. So my concern is that people are being set up again to try and approach that can't work for complicated behaviors like exercise and eating. I'm not critiquing the value of habit formation for things like giving your food, fo your dog food and water in the morning or drinking water yourself or brushing your teeth. Those are very simple things that easily lend themselves to automaticity. There's not a lot that's going to interrupt you giving your dog water. It's a simple, quick behavior. But if, if it's a more complex thing, well, there's multiple steps and that all those steps they don't really fit into the habit loop that, um, and that's where habit stacking comes in, of course, is that if you can create an automatic response for one thing and then you stack another habit on top of it, that that will become a part of it. But it, there's, an, there's, you know, we could spend our whole time talking about it. I mean, another assumption that I just want to throw out there, because I think your audience might be interested, is that... Um, when we form habits, we are assuming, or when we are told that we should be forming habits, there's an assumption that the inner conflict that people have and body shame related to their bodies and disdain of exercising or changing their eating because of this deeper meaning that it has for them, it means my body's not good enough, I get shamed at the doctor, whatever it is, that those inner tensions aren't going to disrupt the automaticity, but just consider if you are someone who has established kind of like the perfect time to do your exercise habit or, or a way to prepare your eating according to the plan you want to do, and you're about to start, and all of a sudden there's this voice inside of you that says, this sucks. I, 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 sh I wish I didn't have to do this. You know, I, I'm, I shouldn't have to do this or I feel bad about myself. Those inner narratives are so common in society, but you can see how they disrupt, again, right at the point of choice when it, that's supposed to be automatic. Um, so those are my concerns. My goal as a sustainable change researcher and health coach who's been doing this and working with people for almost 30 years is that when people attempt another behavior change strategy that doesn't take the, the truth of their experience, their decades of experience, their inner life um, and their life context into account, then they're going to fail again. And eventually people are going to give up and they're going to feel like failures. And that is just terrible for people. I agree. And in terms of, you know, I think you're hitting on disruptions and there's a lot I, I think I'm just going to make up some numbers, but I think it's safe to assume that most people want to eat better and exercise more. So like the intention is there, but then life happens or, you know, it's like, like it talks about me in the show, New Year's resolutions, they fail. So again, and it comes to, in the context of life happens, you classify four decision disruptors 
and I, when I, I read these, oh, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. So can you briefly walk us through those four decision disruptors as we set, you know, set upon a health and wellness goal and then ultimately? Sure. So that's the question. I mean, it's about how do we overcome the disruptions? And one of the way we overcome the disruptions and, not, and don't let it derail what, what we were hoping to do is to name them. So I'm just curious, did you take the quiz on my website to see which of these I did not. I did not take the quiz because I'm actually pretty good on all this. But <laughs> temptation, temptation refers to this visceral pull. I, you know, the couch and Netflix is pulling me instead of the walk outside or the run that I had planned, or that chocolate cake glistening across the room, seductively calling me to it while I'm at a party, and that's not on my eating plan. That refers to the temptation and, and people resonate with this because we face these temptations all the time and they pull us away from what we hope to do. But what people don't know about, which I think has, is, which I've seen is very influential in how people address these temptations is that the temptations that are calling to us are not actually what we're looking at and thinking that's calling to us. It's actually in our brains, our past history with those things. And so instead of these external things having power and trying to seduce us, if we know there are new theories just about exercise, just about eating that help us understand why our past experiences are making us tempted away from our intentions and plans, then we have more control over these things pulling us away from what we intend to do. That's one, that's temptation. The second one is rebellion. And again, rebellion is this force um, that people experience when they're starting a, a new eating plan. I don't even want to call it a diet. No, people don't use the word diet anymore because in, in Inherent in that term is people wanting to go, screw you, diet, right? Screw you, restriction. So even in an eating plan or exercise, if people feel that they should do it, then our, our natural human tendency that research um, shows us is that we want to rebel against it. You know, you get to that cake and instead of saying that cake, you, darn it, you know, that cake, you don't say darn it. You're like, you're like, I can't have that cake. And then eventually there's a boomerang effect and you rebel against your intention. And instead of just having some of the cake, because that would be a normal thing to do, you eat three pieces of it because the energy is this reactance and rebellion against this. I can't, I should, I'm being forced to do this. And then the third um, decision trap or decision disruptor is accommodation. And this is a very different type of trap. So imagine, again, you're at a choice point. You're at this challenging situation. You're at a party of your, at your neighborhood and nothing. And, you know, you really want to follow your plan. You're not tempted. You own it. So there's no rebellion. But your dear friend across the street is coming to you with these three pieces of pizza fruit to offer to you. And instead of following your plan, which you really do want to follow, because you want to honor their needs to care for you, you just take it and say thank you and you eat the whole thing and you feel terrible, 
Um, be, and you're doing it because you're trying to accommodate their needs instead of your own. And the way we address all of these three um, has to do with how we address the last one, which is perfection. And again, this gets back to how we started our conversation, which is that we have been taught that we've got to do it right. You know, you've got a plan to exercise. You've got a plan to eat. If you can't follow the plan, it's not worth doing. Screw it. It's not worth doing. And so you don't do anything. It's all or nothing thinking. And so all or nothing thinking, ironically, I mean, it is a cognitive distortion, but it is the most prominent dominant way we have been taught to think about our exercise and eating in society. So we've been taught to have a cognitive distortion when it comes to exercise and eating. And the solution is what I call the joy choice. And that sets up all the other disruptors. It sets you up to more effectively navigate them. And I'm not saying, you know, disintegrate them or annihilate them because that energy isn't going to help you address these things that are deeply compelling in your mind. I have a lot of thoughts, a lot to unpack there. So coming back to temptation, what role does environment play in temptation and, and setting yourself up for success there? The example I'll use, if let's say you're, you work from home, you're at home and you love cookies and you know you can't just have one, then you perhaps don't buy cookies and leave them in your your cupboard. Um, so could you spend a moment? What environment? Like how environment to me is critical. It is. It is critical. It is. But it's only a small piece of the pie, if you will. So or maybe it's not a small piece of the pie. It's one part of the pie. And here's why. Because you can um, engineer your home environment to be temptation free. And, you know, I think that's not a bad idea. You know, I, I love potato chips and, you know, when they're in the house, I eat them. So I do not have them in the house, but let's shift to a party where there's this great bowl of ruffles, you know, or um, I can't, engineer, I'm not going to call my friend who's having the party and say, please make sure there's no potato chips. So if we don't learn how to navigate the other environments, we're going to not be set up for success. Now, if you're in your home 95% of the time and you only have to deal with those other situations 5% of the time, then it's not a big deal. But if you find yourself all the time, whether it's in a work office or at a party or going out to eat, unable to deal with the temptations, then you need a, then you do need to learn a strategy for those other places. So you lead me to my next question. You know, we're, we're going to the hypothetical party with our friend who's got the ruffles, not the best option, way better, you know, get Siete chips or Barniana. There's so many other great chips, but regardless, we're talking about chips. So leads me to partners, spouses, friends, communities, in my opinion, they, they play a significant role as you're looking to, to adopt a healthier lifestyle. Because if you're, if you're in an environment where you, your partner or friend has a party and for their, you know, they're, they're going around with their hors d'oeuvres and they've got 
uh, you know, kale chips, that's much better. So what, what can we talk about partners, friends, communities as well? So, yes, sharing with people what we're trying to do and asking for their, you know, support is is an important thing to do. But that isn't going to eradicate these other places where we're going to bump up against, you know, foods that are not on the plan or foods that we don't want to eat. I mean, one of the problems is, and I'm just going to jump to perfection, one of the problems with our whole mindset when we get to these challenging um, choice points is that we haven't been educated that being flexible and doing some part of our plan instead of trying to do it all actually will set most of us up for better success than if we try to get it, you know, try to follow our plan. You know, it's about all or nothing thinking. And so. Yeah. So all or nothing, you know, I keep on thinking, I'm hearing you speak, I think about myself and what I've done. And I am an all or nothing thinker, but only for part of the week. And so I am very rigid and very all or nothing, but probably only Monday through Thursday. And so it allows me to, you know, be maniacal about what I eat, how I exercise, what I do. And I have some hard non-negotiables, but come those other days. And there's some flexibility there. Uh, I kind of do whatever. And, and, and with some ground rules and where I'm going with this is, you know, you, you mentioned someone feeling guilty about or shameful about having the donut or the treat. It segues. I, I think like so much of this comes to mindset. So like one establishing a framework where you can be rich to some degree, you need, you need, you need some level of commitment or, rigidity otherwise you're just not going to have any success so you need there's there are some non-negotiable non-negotiables you have to commit to at, that work for you and at the same time if being healthy is going to make you miserable then then what's what's the point there are all sorts of studies that the whole <laughs> point to that and so coming back to mindset that you know the donut for example rather than labeling it you know cheat i'm cheating which which leads to shame. I, I, I hate and rebellion. I hate it. To me, it's treat, 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 treat. If I'm going to have this donut, it's going to bring me joy. So it's like cheat versus treat, shame versus joy, exercise. I, 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 I love it. I hate it. I'm eating spinach. I love it. I hate it. So like, I'm just like, I'll pause there. Like this idea of, you know, I love your title because it is about joy. Um, and how, how do we how do you approach mindset there with regards to diet exercise because because it is so much of it is just how you frame things up that is the core of what my work has been about because for 30 years and i've been working with people and when people understand that the mindset that they've been taught to have again it's not their fault what people have to understand is we've been taught to have all or nothing thinking and mindsets that set us up to feel like failures, to feel the shame and all that. So 
But once we understand that, then we can be free to say, okay, this mindset does not work. And just to be clear, I've been told I say this too much, but I'm going to say it because I think it's so important. Research unequivocally shows that the frame we put around any action or experience drastically influences how we experience that action, whether we want to do it again, how it feels. So the frame is everything. It's profound. It's the foundation. Um, So it gets a little, it's more complicated than it because it's not enough to say, I'm going to enjoy this exercise. That's a good frame. Or I'm going to exercise to boost my well-being instead of try to lose weight. Those frames are completely different. And research shows that the well-being frame is going to have much more adaptive outcomes than the weight loss frame. However, I just want to show that it's more complicated. Then we can go back to your question. However, if you say, I want to boost my well-being with exercise, and you're going to the gym and killing yourself in ways that you hate and disdain, that experience is probably going to overpower this overarching frame. So we still have to find ways of doing the behavior that is going to affirm our own preferences. So I'm going to stop there. Um, I want to go back to your, your earlier question about, you know, being rigid or following a plan in a, in a pretty committed way during the week. And then on the weekend, giving yourself flexibility, you know, There was a study that uh, a weight loss registry study, and they wanted to know that over a year, if people on this weight loss registry, so everyone on the registry had lost a certain amount of weight and maintained it, they wanted to assess over a prospective year time, are people who bring more flexibility, what's called flexible restraint to their weekend eating, better likely to sustain their weight loss than people who try to get it right and stay rigid on their plan over the weekend. Now, which group do you think better sustained their weight loss? The weekend group, without question, yeah. Exactly what you said. So, But do you see how this is counterintuitive to the ways most people think they should be doing things? Yeah, yes. And I also believe, you know, it's important. It goes back to the, the, the why. Are, are you doing this to feel good? Are you doing this for longevity? Are you doing this? And I want to come back to weight loss because many people, weight loss is the goal. But you say when weight loss is the goal, it's not sustainable. Uh, and I... I and I and I go back, you know, someone once said to me, and I think this this carries over to how I approach nutrition and fitness. Uh, they said in the context of of of, of basketball and, and coaching a long time ago, but it was never uh, oh you know, always enforce your rules. Always enforce your rules. Don't have a lot of rules. You know, it it makes it makes sense the other if we go back you know to how we started which is that for any long-term area of our life if our expectations are that there's a ton of rules 
and you have to get it right every time, we don't bring that same mentality to parenting and our work and our spousing and our cooking. I, you know, it's just, if we brought, you know, we, we do have standards with parenting. I mean, you know, in general, we know that screaming at our kids all the time would be a terrible thing. So we aim to be kind and compassionate. And yet that doesn't mean we don't scream sometimes. Right. But it's like, what are the, what are the general standards kind of your Monday through Thursday? What are the Monday through Thursday that we care deeply about doing? And then where's the wiggle room? And when we have wiggle room, does that mean everything else is a fail? It doesn't, right? So I guess we need what I'm proposing, not only that we need to bring a more holistic mentality to eating and exercise um, and to our self-care more generally, but that when we decide that we are going to have, that our path, our journey of lasting change by its very nature, unless we're like my husband, because he has no variability in his stuff. He, there are some people, I think it's a minority of people, there are some people who have very disciplined personalities. They live every aspect of their life with discipline, but they're not the majority of the population. So I appreciate and I respect that people like my husband do are going to do it perfectly like they do every area of their life, mostly. I'm, not, I'm, being, I'm exaggerating. But then the rest of us have to think about how do I succeed in these other areas of my life? And um, by default, physical activity, exercise, and our eating practices are going to have to mirror that perfectly perfectly imperfect path because that's what life is for those of us who are not like what I call habiters. Yeah, well said. I love perfectly imperfect. Um I'm going to come back to weight loss because, look, obesity is an epidemic. Uh, we've got some serious issues that, that we need as a society to overcome. So for many, weight loss is the goal, and, and it's a necessary goal with, with weight loss ultimately benefiting our health and well-being. And you, know, you say when weight loss is the goal, it's not sustainable. And so for those who weight loss really needs to be the goal, like they need to lose weight or maybe some situations they really want to lose weight. How should we be thinking about weight loss when it is the goal, even if we need to tell ourselves it isn't the goal? So here's what we know. We have to start with what do we know about trying to lose weight? We know that um, most people, I would even use the vast majority of people, have lost weight and gained it and lost weight and gained it. So <clears throat> the vast majority of people have not succeeded at sustaining weight loss. That's, that means there's something wrong with, the, with how we've been doing it, number one. We know that weight loss, you know, when we think about exercise, get if that's your goal for exercise, then burning calories is your goal. And then you're going to choose physical activities that aim to burn the most calories. Um, we know from research that when we exercise at high intensities, most of us, not everyone, most of us, our pleasure plummets when we exercise at high intensities. And we also know from research that 
how we feel while we exercise then determines whether we keep doing it or not. So weight loss, burn calories, high intensity exercise, yuck, I don't want to do it. So that's just, that's the pathway for physical activity. So the, the king of persuasion who I'm having like a, 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 a more than midlife moment here, and I can't think of his last name, the power of persuasion. Do you know what I'm talking about? Robert Cialdini, I think. Yes. He was speaking at Michigan about 10, 15 years ago. And this was when the obesity epidemic really, maybe it was 15 years ago, because it was really coming hard and fast. It was all over the place. And I really love his work. And, you know, I already knew what my answer to this question was, but I wanted to see what he would say. And I said, I raised my hand. In fact, I jumped out of my seat after he was done giving his lecture. And I said, Tell me, what do you think about all this attention to obese, the obesity epidemic? You know, oh, guru of persuasion. And he said, if I were the czar of obesity, I would not be talking about the obesity epidemic. His research would suggest that the, when you talk about something like that, you're, you're actually normalizing it instead of doing having the effect that you want. So that's just one part of the answer. It's a, the, 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 the more direct answer in terms of the work that I've done with people and my own research is that feelings, how we feel, um, and, and, and this is how our, the neuroscience of reward, how our brains are wired, how we feel and our, our, both our awareness and our unawareness of feelings from our actions are what is going to drive our daily decision making. So even if people, this is, I talk to healthcare providers all the time about this. It's, it's a conundrum because someone would say, a provider would say to their patient, you've got to, and my husband's research on diabetes would say that the best way people can you know, control their diabetes or even get out of that state is to drop a lot of weight. But that is kind of, in theory, that's what we need. It doesn't take people's psychology into account. It doesn't take our past experience into account. It doesn't take into account how people make daily decisions. So what we want to do is help people understand and get very aware of how do you feel when you make certain choices. And it's gotta go beyond, I feel great when I eat the piece of cake compared to the fruit or the, or the carrots or whatever. We've gotta go beyond that kind of taste in the mouth to how do you really feel on an energetic level? And I'm sure you know Justin um, Brewer's work, who I'm a big fan of his work. And he talks about um, the way our brains work is that we can teach our brains to revalue, to recalculate the value of that piece of cake or the whole cake when we start to notice how the full experience, not just the how it tastes in our mouth, but again, if we eat too much of it or if we um, you think about how easy it is if we're rebelling against shoulds to overeat. I mean, th there's this whole dynamic that also gets omitted in the conversation. If you're losing weight, if that creates a should or pressure, 
you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot before you've even walked out the door. So it's complicated because we, it goes back to the frame. It is complicated. And I, and I'm still thinking about what Cialdini said and trying to really understand what he meant when he said, if we wanted to solve for obesity, we wouldn't talk about it. He's saying, when you say everyone is doing it, that's what his research is about. When you say everyone is doing it both for good and bad things, people do more of it. So because we're saying everyone's obese, this is a problem. We, we, we are following the same phenomenon, the same messaging that his research on environment, you know, environment, um, you know, green activities. And I think he, he does more than that too, but this is a very potent response that everybody's doing it response is it's consistently potent. Well, on the other hand, you know, I think about the body positivity movement. If you think about that movement saying essentially you're, you're, you're and I think maybe we've gone too far there. Uh, Bill Maher had an interesting segment on that, uh, which I may go to in a moment, but, uh, that doesn't seem to be working either. I think I, I, I don't disagree with you that, that it's, while it's important to feel good about our bodies, if the messaging, I think there's a middle ground here. I think we're missing the middle ground. And the middle ground is that if you ask people who are carrying extra weight, how they feel, in their bodies, I think a lot of people are going to say, I don't feel very well in my body. And that's complicated because some of that is socialization and these internalized harmful beliefs. Because you see, if people feel that they're not worthy the way they are, that's going to sabotage their efforts. So it's, there's a tension. And I think what Mar was, I watched the segment and, and, I'll, and I'll read from it. He, he was pointing out to many of the advertising campaigns uh, that essentially were celebrating people who were obese. Um, and his take, I'll just read it because I thought it was powerful and provocative at the very least. Uh, and this is from Bill Maher directly, his words, not mine. Uh, quote, we've gone from fat acceptance to fat celebration. That's new. That is new. To view letting yourself go as a point of pride, we used to at least try and be fit and healthy and society praised those who succeeded. Now the term body positivity is used to mean I'm perfect the way I am because I'm me. It's Orwellian how often positivity is used to describe what's not healthy. Of course, you can get away with anything bad for you when you're young. And then he closed with the rhetorical question. Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a fat 90 year old? And then pause for a moment. And, you know, it's Bill Maher. So Bill Maher is Bill Maher. I love Bill Maher, but he always takes it too far. But I thought it was very interesting because we've got an obesity epidemic. And he's pointing out, like, it seems like we're celebrating this and we shouldn't be. It's His comment is logical, but completely naive. And here's why. It doesn't take what we know about um, motivation into account. It doesn't take decision making. I'm not saying there's not a middle ground. I'm saying I'm explaining why his extreme is inaccurate. You could say we used to celebrate when people succeeded, but 
the, the vast majority of the population cannot succeed. So what, if we really want to help people succeed, it's got, it's got to come. Okay, here's where it has to come out of. You know, we can look at, there's so many different bodies of research we could look at. We could look at approach goal versus avoidant goal research. We could look at Kristen Neff's self-compassion research. Um, we can look at self-determination theory. I mean, I don't want to geek out on your audience, but uh, yeah. So, so, and you know, the whole, and, and the mindfulness aspect and the non-judgmental aspect if we don't start from a place of like that we are inherently worthy as we are right now, the the whole pathway of behavior change is sabotaged. So I wish it weren't complex. I wish it were as easy as saying you're, you know, you're, you're this, you weigh this much, your blood lipids are this, you're pre-diabetic or you have diabetes if you lose weight, you're going to be healthy and feel good. If, if I wish it were that simple, but the problem is, is that when we, when we wrap up our exercise and eating goals and plans and projects with weight loss, we are, we are intertwining it with, um, with phenomena, mental phenomenon, psychosocial phenomenon that, that contaminate our motivation um, and how we feel about ourselves. And, and that sets us up to not want to take care of ourselves. So let me ask the question or maybe re reframe it. So if one is looking to achieve longevity, for example, this is an easy example for me because that's something I'm interested in. It's I'm 47, heart disease runs in my family. I've got little kids. I want to live for as long as I want to live. And, and, and the question is, is why? And, and for me, it's, I want to be able to be around, but it's not enough just to be around. I want to be able to, to play and to, to move and to run around. So it like reframes the way I think of the why and like what I'm looking to accomplish. It's not just like be alive because I don't want to be alive and can't be mobile and, you know, be like, oh, my back, my knees. Like I am doing things that uh, Peter Atia, who, who's an expert on this, he, he, he is a fantastic podcast and he calls it the, I think the centenarian decathlon. Uh, you know, what, what do you want to do? You want to be able to pick up your grandchild or great grandchild. And so it's like, all right, I got a plan to be mobile and pick up something that's around 30 pounds. So it, it hits to the why of longevity. And so is it helpful to reframe weight loss? Like, why do you want to lose weight? Is it for longevity? Or maybe I want to uh, do something else like drilling further, like wh what's behind the goal of the weight? Exactly right. That's yes. The answer is yes. You just won the you just won the lottery because the answer is yes, that we need to go behind weight loss or longevity and ask why. I mean, for some people, they just, just they've had such negative experiences with weight loss that they just like I'm ditching that and I'm just going to start thinking about these other ways of taking care of myself. But if 
a very straightforward way to deal with the whys of these future or kind of negative outcomes to say, why do I care about that? And then why do I care about that? So, you know, I talk about that in one in my Choose Joy chapter about getting behind that. So that it, it can be effective. You know, a, a physical therapist, um, you know, emailed me after she heard me speak and she said, you know, I've had this patient who had jaw cancer and, you know, she has these exercises that she just are so boring and she won't do them. But then after I heard you speak, I said to her, why do you care about smiling again? And the woman started tearing up and she's got her daughter's wedding coming up next year. And that why under the exercises motivated her to really um, be compelled to do this. So yes, the short, the long answer is we do, we want to understand what's behind it. And we want, we need to get as far away from the, the negativity because the negativity just is, it's just a lose, lose out the door. Yeah. So, so, uh, the, the, the infamous Kate Moss line, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. Is that, uh, I, you know, I did, I didn't know that, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think feeling is if we want, you know, learning and, and the frame we put on what we eat and how we exercise absolutely influences it. So if we want to have more positive feelings, we need to understand what we're bringing to the frame we're bringing to it and the why. The why frames the experience. So, yes. So in closing, what 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 are your parting words of wisdom for anyone listening who wants to feel better, maybe drop a couple pounds. Um, maybe they've, maybe they know their why maybe it's, they want to fit into a dress. Maybe it's, they want to get some of their, their lipid panel under control because cardiovascular disease runs in their family. They, they've maybe identified their why, what advice do you have for them just to, you know, it, it's all about momentum in my opinion, not all about, I'm simplifying it, but so much of it is about momentum and getting started. So what advice do you have for that person? Just I don't think it's about momentum and getting started. I think that's the, I think that's a misperception. I think it's about keeping the momentum when we have dips and challenges. So I, that's what, that's my final word is, you know, your why, you know, you want to change something make sure that the why is really about affirming who you are, but then understand and, and, and celebrate, if you will, that on your path to doing these things that you want to do to achieve your why, there's going to be ups and downs and, and, and forks in the road and know that rather than those being failures, that they're part of this path of lasting change and to honor them try to do a piece of it and celebrate it and make the perfect and perfect choice. Call it the joy choice um, because that celebrates this thing that's inevitable, that's unideal, that's not ideal, but that it's something that's going to keep us on the path of taking better care of ourselves. Well said, Michelle, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.